You are listening to Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. Welcome to episode four of the Antibiotic Awareness Series. In today's episode, we are joined by Aaron Pearson, PGY1 pharmacy resident at Sentara Norfolk General Hospital. Before we turn things over, let's go over some important CME announcements. This episode has been accredited for AMA PRA Category 1 credits. For detailed accreditation and designation information, along with disclosure information, please visit the show notes. This information can also be found on our website, www.sentera.com forward slash physician education, as well as reaching us by email at physicianeducation at sentera.com. Now let's turn things over to Dr. Pearson. Hello, everyone. My name is Aaron Pearson. I'm a current PGY-1 pharmacy resident at Sentara Norfolk General Hospital. And today I want to talk about on this podcast is some antimicrobial stewardship practices that we could see with COVID-19. Specifically, I want to take a look at the uh, incidence of the available literature to see the how frequently patients are presenting with a combination of a COVID-19 infection as well as a bacterial infection as well. As we all know, oftentimes patients will be initiated on empiric antimicrobial therapy with COVID-19. So really taking a look at the literature and the data and seeing if it supports that or if it's a practice that we should, uh, you know, certainly be adjusting a little bit. So I want to talk through a few of the studies that are available and that really take a look at the incidence of bacterial co-infection with COVID-19. Now, all these studies took place back in early on in the pandemic, early 2020. So that is something to keep in mind. But uh, the first study I want to talk about is a uh, multi-hospital cohort study included about 1,700 patients from March to June of 2020. And it took place across 38 hospitals in Michigan. And then the primary outcome that this study was looking at was the percent of patients that were prescribed empiric antibiotics within the first two days of their hospitalization. Of course, at that point, it would be considered a community-acquired infection. Anything after that would be considered hospital-acquired. The secondary outcome that the uh, study looked at was the incidence of a community-onset bacterial co-infection. Now, this was defined as either having a, a positive respiratory or blood blood culture, a positive Legionella or strep pneumo antigen, or a positive mycoplasma or chlamydophila PCR test. So what they found is that there was a confirmed bacterial co-infection in three and a half percent of all patients. And what they actually found was a a one to 20 ratio of patients with a confirmed bacterial co-infection to those without a need for antibiotics. When we look at the antibiotic usage uh, in this patient population, 56% of all patients hospitalized with COVID-19 during this time frame were administered empiric antibiotic therapy. 64% of those patients that were given antibiotic received antibiotics that were targeted towards community-acquired pathogens. The most commonly antibiotic that was seen was uh, ceftriaxone, and their median duration of antimicrobial therapy was three days. They did also do a multivariable analysis for predictors that led patients to be more likely to be given empiric antibiotic therapy, and what they found was that an older age, a lower BMI, increased need for respiratory support, and low bar infiltrates all led patients to be more likely to receive empiric antimicrobial therapy. Additionally, they looked at uh, procalcitonin as a, you know, certainly a potential measure to help guide antimicrobial therapy in these patients. And what they found was that 56% of patients with community bacterial co-infection and 21.2% of patients that did not 
have a co-infection had a procalcitonin that level that was greater than 0.5. This resulted in a positive predictive value of procalcitonin that was greater than 0.5 to be 9.3%. And they also found that a ne uh, they had a negative predictive value of a procalcitonin level of less than or equal to 0.1 to be 98.3%. So it was a little bit better as a, uh, or excuse me, significantly better as a negative predictor uh, rather than as a positive predictor. And what we can see is that uh, some of our rapid biomarkers here, such as procalcitonin, aren't always going to be the end-all be-all for diagnosis since there was a little over 20% of patients who had an elevated procalcitonin for some reason other than a bacterial infection. When we look at some of the limitations and conclusions from this study, I think having a lack of data on the secondary infections that were developed in these patients, it would have been nice to, to have that data available. And that's kind of a consistent theme in some of these studies that we'll look at. And then they also excluded azithromycin as an antibiotic, as at the time it was considered more of a COVID-19 therapy in these Michigan hospitals and, and really uh, most places. So what we could see, we had a low incidence of confirmed bacterial co-infection, but a rather high use of empiric antimicrobial therapy. So really the numbers don't necessarily align or match up to indicate that these patients should have appropriately been receiving that empiric antimicrobial therapy. Another consideration is that, you know, having our hospital staff go into administering these antibiotics and exposing them to patients that, uh, you know, have COVID-19 unnecessarily when the antibiotic antimicrobial agents are not necessarily required. You know, it's just another consideration that we're exposing our staff unnecessarily. So the next study that I want to talk about is a retrospective cohort study, very similar to the last one, except this one took place in the Netherlands. It was a sample size of about 1,200 patients, and it took place across four hospital sites from March to May of 2020. Their primary outcome was the incidence of bacterial co-infection in early hospitalization, so very similar to the previous study, and their criteria for what a uh, bacterial infection was was just the same as the previous study. What they found was that 15 patients of those 1,200, or 1.6%, had a positive test or culture. Three of those uh, sputum cultures, however, were considered contaminants, which actually dropped the number down to 1.2%, or 12 total patients that were considered to have a co-infection. Seven of those 12 patients had a co-infection that was diagnosed within the first two days of admission, which again would be considered a community-acquired infection. And then 60.1% of those patients were given an antibiotic within 24 hours of admission or were prescribed an antibiotic with, within 24 hours. So of the antibiotics that were prescribed, most commonly we saw second and third generation cephalosporins. Uh, or a penicillin. So really looking at agents that target community-acquired bacterial infection as well there, uh, bacterial pneumonia. So really we're, again, seeing a similar trend where the, the incidence of co-infection doesn't necessarily match the uh, rate of administering empiric antimicrobial therapy to these patients. So now that we've kind of looked at a couple of, uh, you know, retrospective lower level studies, I have a next study that I want to look at is a uh, systematic review and meta-analysis, a little bit larger of a sample. This study had about 3,400 patients included and included 30 studies, 29 of which were observational and one was a randomized control trial. Uh, and the studies included were from January through April of 2020. The study inclusion by country, so the majority of these studies came from China. There were a few from the U.S. and then a few from a couple of other countries as well. Their primary outcome in this study was the uh, proportion of patients with a bacterial, fungal, or viral co-infection 
Um, so since I've been mostly focusing on bacterial co-infection, I will comment on the incidence of viral and fungal, but really, uh, again, continuing to focus on bacterial for the purpose of this talk. So the incidence of bacterial co-infection in the old cohort uh, in this meta-analysis was 7%. So this was actually a little bit higher than the previous studies, but still, you know, 7% is, is much lower than the rate of which we we're actually administering empiric antimicrobial agents in, in a lot of these patients. So interestingly, they did a uh, subgroup analysis. So most of these studies did pool all their patients together, whether they were uh, patients in the ICU or whether they were patients just on your general medicine floor. Um, however, some studies did separate the patients and did actually uh, have a, a separate ICU subpopulation. So this meta-analysis did a subgroup analysis for studies with the separate ICU patient population and found that there was a greater incidence of bacterial co-infection compared to studies with the mixture of ICU and general medicine ward patients that was statistically significant. And what they found was that ICU alone had an incidence of co-infection of 14%. They did also find that uh, patients with a bacterial co-infection had a higher risk for mortality. So again, I think it's really put into perspective that you know, not everyone, as we've seen so far, should be getting empiric antibiotics, but really making sure that the appropriate patient population that needs it gets it. When we take a little bit of a deeper dive into kind of this sub-analysis, so the patients, we, we obviously know that the mixed hospital medicine and ICU patient population had a lower incidence than the subgroup of ICU alone. But, you know, a couple of comments that I would make on that uh, would be that perhaps the, the mixed population may actually be overestimating the incidence in the, the ward or medicine floor patients since uh, ICU patients are mixed in. And we know that ICU patients have, you know, from the subgroup that they saw, have a higher incidence of having that bacterial co-infection. So perhaps it's more reasonable to start antibiotics empirically in these patients in the ICU. Now, the question also that I would have is, you know, without a, a significant amount of data on the secondary infections, is are these patients coming in with COVID-19 and are they going straight to the ICU with a co-infection or are they more likely, you know, coming in, you know, having their stay with COVID and then ultimately acquiring a hospital-acquired infection, perhaps decompensating and then going to the ICU at that point. So without that information, I think it's tough to say, but I think, you know, that it's much more reasonable to have antibiotics on in, in maybe the ICU population. And then if we get cultures back, you know, say within the first 48 hours and nothing's growing, you know, we have a, a bit of a lower threshold to uh, de-escalate at that point. So when we look at the most common offending pathogen that was seen in this meta-analysis, most frequently mycoplasma pneumonia was isolated at a incidence of 42% of the 27 confirmed uh, pathogen detections. After that, they uh, saw Pseudomonas and Haemophilus influenzae at 12% each. Klebsiella pneumonia was isolated from four patients, and notably, uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus was only isolated in one patient. So I think a few of the limitations and conclusions that we can draw from this study, uh, most of the studies did come from China, and most were kind of case series with and retrospective with limited details on their co-infection and, and secondary infections. And then they, they did comment that it was possible that the co-infections and secondary infections may have been underestimated. Again, uh, the conclusions here, I think, you know, similarly to the previous data, we have a very low incidence of co-infection really shouldn't be given empiric antibiotics to everybody. There was a lower incidence of co-infection with COVID comparing with previous influenza pandemics. And I think another thing that we saw here is that the ICU patients 
you know, certainly had a higher incidence of bacterial co-infection. Certainly, uh, you know, we saw that a, there's a greater risk of mortality uh, with the bacterial co-infection. So really just being judicious and selecting who might be more appropriate candidates to receive empiric antibiotic therapy uh, rather than administering it to every patient that comes in with COVID-19. So then the next question would be, can we differentiate a co-infection from just COVID and how would we do that? So there was a study published in 2021 that looked at just this and asked this question, uh, what type of characteristics might help differentiate? And so this study took place from January to February of 2020 across seven hospitals in China, had 905 patients included, and 9.5% of those patients had a bacterial co-infection. Now, their criteria for what a co-infection or a bacterial infection was, was a newly increased white blood cell count. Uh, with a majority of that coming as neutrophils, newly increased airway purulent secretions, increased procalcitonin, typical peripheral ground glass opacity mixed with increased density effusion opacities, and then administering antimicrobial therapy that was effective empirically. Additionally, they did, just to drive this point home that we've kind of already talked about, about the increased risk of mortality, they did a Kaplan-Meier analysis. And what they found in terms of survival and mortality, that there was adjusted hazard ratio of 8.21 for patients that had a co-infection. So again, really, it's important to give the patients that do have a co-infection, you know, antibiotics, but really, again, being judicious and trying to select which ones. So now we'll kind of look at some of the characteristics that they found or that they examined and looked at uh, might have helped to differentiate that. So they did do a sensitivity analysis on all these. And what they found was as predictors of a bacterial co-infection were patients that were older, patients with higher white blood cell counts, a lymphocyte count that was de uh, decreased uh, with an increase in neutrophil count as well. Procalcitonin. So again, this one is a little difficult because we've already looked at that. And, and so what they found was that 99% of viral only infections were less than 0.5 for their procalcitonin versus 87% of bacterial and 13% of bacterial co-infections were greater than 0.5 versus just 1% for COVID. So, you know, again, it's, it may not be the most specific as we'll see with a lot of these markers. A significantly higher C-reactive protein Again, uh, you know, it's an inflammatory marker, so it's not necessarily very specific. Interestingly, the most sensitive marker that they found was albumin, and that a lower albumin was more associated with a bacterial co-infection compared to a viral infection alone. They did mention glucocorticoid use, but I won't comment on that since that's essentially standard of care now. And then they found that ICU admission and mechanical ventilation had significantly higher odds ratios for patients that had bacterial co-infections. So I think really the take-home point here is there's a lot of non-specific things that really it's difficult to distinguish. So I think it's important to look at the whole clinical picture of the patient um, when deciding if they might need antibiotics or not. You know, really, I think, again, to me, it sounds more reasonable, especially in our ICU patients, to really be administering antibiotics, you know, empirically, and then having a lower threshold to de-escalate if we have cultures coming back within 48 hours or so uh, um, with negative values. But not everyone should be receiving antibiotics empirically. So in June of 2021, the CDC and IDSA uh, put out a joint update on just this topic. And what they said was that these 
co-infections are occurring relatively infrequently, likely less than 10% of our hospitalized COVID patients, and that the current literature does not support using routine empiric antibiotics in these patients. They really mentioned the same type of thing, looking at kind of the whole clinical picture and seeing if, you know, it's reasonable to maybe administer antibiotics by really examining the patient and a lot of different factors like that, and that we should be limiting our antibiotic overuse during the pandemic as good antimicrobial stewards. I will comment too, uh, there is some speculation out there that with different variants that perhaps the rate of co-infection changes as this data is all from early 2020. So, you know, it would definitely be a lot nicer if we had a little more recent literature to kind of look at this question and see if it, you know, if it still runs true today. So I'll briefly just touch on why should we care about limiting our routine empiric antibiotic use. And really the two issues that come to mind would be certainly resistance as COVID spreads across the globe. We could certainly see a rise in a spread of resistance, antimicrobial resistance as well. And then Clostridium difficile infection. So certainly we know that our antibiotic use is the greatest risk factor for developing Clostridium difficile. And so, uh, you know, by limiting our antibiotic overuse, and really, uh, you know, especially if it's not necessary in these in low incidence of co-infections, uh, you know, we're just essentially uh, giving these patients antibiotics unnecessarily and putting them at a higher risk to develop a uh, C. diff infection. So to kind of sum up all the points that we've talked about, the incidence of bacterial co-infection with COVID-19 is low. As we saw, the IDSA and CDC recommendations said it was actually less than 10%. The studies we looked at, you know, even less than that at 7%, 1%, and 3.5%. So the current available literature really does not suggest using empiric antibiotics in every single COVID-19 positive patient that walks through, uh, walks through our door. Now, the mortality is higher in those with co-infections, and we saw is more common in ICU patients. So really just being selective in which patients should get empiric antibiotic therapy. Again, it, you know, it was hard to say if these patients are, you know, coming in and being admitted straight to the ICU with a uh, bacterial co-infection or if they're, you know, coming in, acquiring an infection in the hospital and then being moved to the ICU as they clinically deteriorate. Um, I think it's much more reasonable, again, to start antibiotics, especially in those ICU patients. But, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be something that we do in every single, uh, you know, general medicine and floor patient that walks through our door. So with that, I think that wraps up everything I wanted to talk about. Just wanted to say thank you for listening and I hope everyone has a great day. You've been listening to Sentara Healthcare's Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. Be on the lookout for the next episode. As a reminder, read today's show notes for information about claiming your continuing education credits. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers, the podcast that provides evidence-based education programs for physicians and healthcare providers on the go.